Hello, my name is Jody Lima, and welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the kids' books we love. On this twice-monthly podcast, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts, such as writers, teachers, and librarians, about their own favorite children's books. The poem I'm going to highlight today is from a classic children's poetry book originally published in 1961. It's called Hailstones and Halibut Bones, Adventures in Color. It was written by Mary O'Neill, and in the 1990 reissue, it was illustrated by John Wallner. Uh, in this book, uh, Mary O'Neill explores all the colors of the spectrum. Uh, she uses rich imagery and sound to suggest new ways of thinking about color. The whole book is worth a read, but for today, I'm going to highlight her poem about the color purple. What is Purple? by Mary O'Neill Time is purple, just before night when most people turn on the light. But if you don't, it's a beautiful sight. Asters are purple. There's purple ink. Purple's more popular than you think. It's sort of a great-grandmother to pink. There are purple shadows and purple veils. Some ladies purple their fingernails. There's purple jam and purple gel, and a purple bruise next day will tell where you landed when you fell. The purple feeling is rather put out. The purple look is a definite pout. But the purple sound is the loveliest thing. It's a violet opening in the spring. My guest today is the author E. Lockhart. Her books include the New York Times bestseller We Were Liars and The Disreputable History of Frankie Landau Banks, which was a Prince Award Honor Book, a National Book Award finalist, and a recipient of the Sybils Award for Best Young Adult Novel. Her latest novel is the young adult suspense novel Genuine Fraud, published this year by Penguin Random House. You can find her website at www.emilylockhart.com. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Ms. Lockhart. Oh, thanks. I'm glad to be here. Now, as I mentioned, your latest book is Genuine Fraud. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Genuine Fraud is the story of two young women who look enough alike to share a passport. It is an anti-hero story, so it is full of action and adventure. It takes place in cities across the globe, so in that sense, it's not really a, a typical young adult novel. Not that there really is such a thing as a typical young adult novel, but it is not set in high school. The characters are 18 years old. But they are navigating their new, newly adult identities in a way that I think is fundamental to um, the genre of young adult literature. They are figuring out who they are separately from their family, families of origin, right? Uh, reinventing themselves as they depart from the institutions like school and church and family that have shaped them as children. So it really is very much a coming-of-age story, but in kind of a different mold than I've written before. And uh, where did the idea for this particular story come from? Well, Genuine Fraud is told backwards. It starts with Chapter 18 and then goes to Chapter 17 and 16. And so you're peeling back uh, layers, so to speak, to uncover the truth about the characters and, and understand the origin story of, of the central character. And I had been looking for a story to tell backwards for a while. I really like writing with narrative constraints. I like writing stories that have to fit themselves into, let's say, the idea of a list or 
that use footnotes or that use fairy tales from outside of the narrative to enhance or develop the narrative. I like all those kinds of conceits and have used them. So I wanted to tell a story backwards, and I settled on the idea of an anti-hero story as a kind of story that would be better told backwards in a lot of ways, where there would be a really good reason to tell it backwards. And I was inspired in part by this novel by Patricia Highsmith, which is called The Talented Mr. Ripley. It's kind of a classic of suspense fiction. And I'd always really admired that novel and had read it many times. And I wanted to write something very much in that vein about an intense friendship and a protagonist who was capable of some very bad things. But I also was inspired by a lot of other sources as I began writing um, by Charles Dickens's Great Expectations and by a lot of superhero stories, The Incredible Hulk in particular, but lots of other superhero origin stories, um, action movies, you know, feminist uh, narratives from the 19th century, things like Jane Eyre, um, and so on. So it's a, a book with a lot of influences. Now, this unusual structure of starting it and going backwards, I'm wondering the, the process of writing it. Was it a different sort of process? Um, did you write it as that, or was there a lot of going back and forth as you're writing it? I mapped out the most important elements of the story, and then I reversed them. And then, of course, they didn't make any sense. So I had to reinvent the structure to tell the story coherently, um, once it was reversed. And I, so I kind of had a, you know, an outline that I worked on for quite a while before I really engaged with writing the story. And then I wrote a lot of the story going forward chronologically, whereas the actual novel goes backwards chronologically. So once I knew what I needed to do, I wrote it so that I could go on the emotional journey with the character. So I wrote it going forward in time, and then I revised it, you know, like 14 or 15 times going backwards in time. But the first time I went through it, I went through it forward so that I could, you know, be really connected to the characters and the journey that they're going on, as opposed to the journey that the reader goes on. Now, you mentioned that it draws on sources like uh, uh, the Mr. Ripley and uh, fairy tales. And I know in your other book, We Were Liars, you drew inspiration from fairy tales as well as well as uh, Wuthering Heights and King Lear. I'm just wondering for writers who are starting out, well, what would you tell them about when they're developing their craft, about where to find their inspiration and what to do with it when they're trying to develop their own narratives? Well, Genuine Fraud has no fairy tales in it, but We Were Liars certainly does. My inspiration comes from reading. And it's not always obvious to me that a book is going to influence my fiction. I very often am writing and I suddenly realize that I am in conversation with or in homage to some work of literature that I might have read years and years ago. And there's just, you know, a little powder in my brain, like a little leftover uh, dust from that novel that is still there and that is you know, making its way into my work. So um, very often I go back and read the book again, whatever that book is that I realize I'm in conversation with, but sometimes I don't. Sometimes I start to read it again and it looms so large that, especially if it's a great book, that I set it down and figure that the most important thing is whatever imprint it has already made on me. And I just try to tap into what is the thing I most remember about that book? What is the thing that I've been carrying around all these years from reading it that first or second time? 
and I try to think about, you know, what, how I can make my own work interact with that, that impact that, that the other book has had on me. I understand you also, you teach the, and the MFA program at uh, Hamlin. And uh, if you could talk a little bit about what that program is and what it's like to teach it. Oh, well, if you are interested in learning to write for children and young adults, it is the most amazing program. It's a low residency MFA program. So that means that basically you do most of your homework from home, working one-on-one with an advisor, one advisor each semester that you go. And then you do your coursework in one big burst. So you show up in, let's say, January or July for an 11 or 12 day residency. So this allows people who work a full-time job to get this MFA, right? But there are very few programs that are only for writing for children and young adults. Most of them are programs in writing adult literary fiction, and if they offer anything in children's and young adult, it's just one or two instructors. Our program is all children's and YA. We have Gary Schmidt, Laura Ruby, Phyllis Root, um, Matt De La Pena, Jean Lewin Yang, Anne Ursu, Cherie Smith, Co Booth, Meg Medina. Oh no, wait, Meg Medina, maybe. <laughs> Kelly Barnhill just joined our faculty. Elliot Schreffer just joined our faculty. So we have all of these Newberry winning, Prince winning, Caldecott winning creators making time in their lives to teach and so it's really it's a really fascinating you know place and with a lot of great dialogues going on about writing for young audiences now the book you chose to talk about as one of your favorites is Nimona by Noel Stevenson and this was yes. published in 2015 by Harper Teen uh, for readers who haven't had a chance to read it yet or are unfamiliar with it uh, could you tell them a little bit about what it's about oh well it is a, a graphic novel and it was a National Book Award finalist. It's the story of a, a villain, Blackheart, in a fantasy universe who is going up against kind of the establishment, the king and the institution that he runs, and the whole government of their kingdom. And in the very first scene, young teenage girl shows up on his doorstep and says, hi, I'm your new sidekick. And he's like, I am a villain, and I work alone. I do not need a sidekick. And she's like, yes, you do. I'm a shapeshifter. And it turns out that she's an incredibly powerful shapeshifter named Nimona, and she makes herself very quickly indispensable to him in all of his villainous machinations. And they become really the very best of friends. But Nimona is no easy person to be around because she is more villainous by far than Blackheart. She is incorrigibly violent and also extremely humorous and generous and adorable, but she has a real zest for power and a kind of lack of conscience about killing people. And he really does have a conscience and is really fighting to take over the government because he thinks the government is so corrupt. And so it's really the story of their intense sidekick relationship but it's a sidekick relationship unlike any that i've ever seen before and the characters are incredibly well drawn it's very witty um, but it's also very very emotional it has some great plot twists 
As you mentioned, uh, Nimona is an interesting character. She's impetuous. She's brash. She's more than a little reckless at times. You know, she has this sort of uh, occasional violent streak in her as well. So what's the appeal of this character? Because she's the, you know, the protagonist. She's not, I mean, she is the villain of sorts, but at the same time, she's the hero of the story as well. Well, I don't think she's the protagonist. Blackheart is the protagonist. But she is, well, she's an incredibly powerful female who refuses over and over to conform to our notions of, you know, what little girls are made of. And she invents and reinvents herself over and over. And, you know, I was talking about genuine fraud and the idea of of the reinvention of the self that happens with adolescence. And Nimona is kind of an embodiment of the power of self-reinvention. And so I think that's a very, very compelling magical power to have. And also she's very cool. Like she wears amazing cool clothing and has a cool haircut. And um, and I think there's a little, you know, wish fulfillment fantasy that we can en- engage in, in seeing how terrible she can be, how cool she can be, and how she can still be loved, even when there are monsters inside of her. Yeah, you mentioned that she has this sort of this anger inside her. And I, I was wondering, what's the the importance of seeing something, especially in a, a female uh, character, to have somebody you know, to that, see that sort of raw anger played out? Well, I think there's just this long history of children's literature that takes as its mission the idea that its job is to instruct young people in how to be moral. And, you know, I'm talking about Heidi, Pollyanna, A Little Princess, and books like that many of which are books that I I adored as a child. But they are, you know, fundamentally didactic, right? Here's how to be brave in the face of trauma. Here's how to be good. And I think we still have books in that tradition. They take a different shape nowadays. And many people want their children to read books that are essentially morally or emotionally instructive, or for books to be therapeutic, you know, kind of bibliotherapeutic, help you understand other people through empathy and to, you know, Wonder is a great example of this, right? It's a it's a beautiful book and deserves all of its um, accolades, but it is essentially instructive, right? Choose kind. You know, she does it incredibly artfully and through multiple viewpoints. It's very sophisticated, but um, we are meant to come away with a message. And... Nimona refuses that paradigm. Like, Stevenson is just not going to let us insist on role models. She's not, Stevenson refuses to give us a heroine who is a role model. She gives us a heroine who may not actually be human, but who is also kind of defiantly human, right? She embodies contradictions. She is delightful and terrible. She is needy and all-powerful. She is those things wrapped up together, right? And that is what it is to be human. So to me, even though this is a high fantasy story, this is in some ways you know, much more emotionally truthful because it doesn't let us settle. It doesn't let us find answers. Well, you mentioned earlier that one of her powers is as a shapeshifter, which has its obvious appeal. Uh, but there's a re- recurring idea throughout the book that she has this fear of being stuck in one particular shape. 
And I'm wondering how that how that fear relates to the fears of young readers or even adult readers who are reading this, this fear of being stuck in a particular place. Mm, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that much, the particular idea of being stuck. But of course, that is, I mean, I think that's a, that's one of the reasons probably it appeals to adults as well as to children, right? Adults are always afraid of being stuck in, in the identity that they've chosen, right? That is our, our fear, and it very often comes true for us. Children, I don't know that they, because they are actually in flux so much, right? Their bodies are in flux, and they're, you know, they change schools every year, or classes every year, and they, they have this sense of growth all the time. They're always marking their growth and experiencing their growth. I don't think they fear being stuck in the same way that adults do, but I could be missing something. So what do you think? What made you ask that question? Well, I think of, um, you know, especially uh, teenagers who sometimes are trying out different identities and sometimes uh, get caught in one that uh, turns out not to be what they expected or what they wanted and sometimes find it hard to break out of that particular thing. I think that's all uh, what came to mind for me and seeing that sort of fear of being stuck in one particular place and unable to uh, for people to see her in other ways. Right. And she is so used to having that incredible fluidity where she changes, you know, from, from rhinoceros to dragon to kitty cat to, you know, big strong armed version of herself to a tiny little girl version of herself. She can do all that in the course of a minute. And so when she is stuck, she's incredibly scared. And, you know, that's, that's one of her most vulnerable moments is when she's, when she's stuck. Apart from Nimona's story, there's also, of course, uh, Lord Blackheart has his own story, in particular, uh, the relationship between him and Sir Golden Loin. And in a way, as we find out, uh, at first it's an antagonistic relationship, but as we read on it, we realize it's, it's a bit of a love story. Yes. I mean, one thing that Stevenson, I think, does really well is, you know, for, for readers who are old enough to read it as a love story between the two of them, it's there. For readers who are not, you know, interested in love stories, and are, are, it can be read as a friendship as well. And the two of them, you know, were at the, uh, basically like the boarding school institution training for knights and heroes kind of thing, and became rivals after they were friends, and have then spent their lives as adults battling each other. But they still, once upon a time, were best friends, and they're and you know, and neither of them has anybody new to really rely on and connect with until Blackheart has Nimona, and so Nimona showing up is really Blackheart's first close relationship since Golden <laughs> Golden Loin, and he uh, parted ways. And there's a really lovely little. Did you read the um, little holiday time? cartoons at the very back of the novel i did yeah so there you get a little backstory of the two of them um with blackheart being a little older and golden Lung being younger and the two of them just being still um kids together and it's very charming but to me it's really you know it's not that it's a romance so much although it is a little bit it is that it's about if you are the type of person who doesn't connect with other people as blackheart is that He's only have ever had two people. That's all he's got. He's got Golden Loin and he's got Nimona, and neither of them is easy, right? And so he's looking 
for how how to salvage these relationships, right? So in that sense, it's just very relatable, right? How do you how do you be a friend when you break up with your friend and and now are enemies? How do you be a friend when your friend is is really difficult for anyone else to like at all, right? When your friend acts very badly, you know, he has to ask himself these questions and figure out whether these relationships are are salvageable and how far he's willing to go to be connected with with these two difficult characters. The setting of this book is interesting as well. It has sort of a, a steampunk vibe, except it's not set in Victorian-like setting. It's a, more of a combination of medieval tropes and science fiction. I was wondering what you thought the setting, what does it bring to the story itself? Oh, well, I guess, you know, it is it is a kind of funny combination of medieval village where there's people are shooting bows and arrows and then there's a lot of talk about science and there's some high tech stuff and they have cell phones and various kinds of other technology that they're using. One thing that's interesting about the graphic novel format is that in a graphic novel that is set in some kind of fantasy world that the writer has built, you don't spend all this time explaining the hierarchy of the government or the way that the marketplace works or the currency or anything. You don't spend any time on these long descriptions. You might have a couple images which show something, but that's all you have. So the world building is very much left to the reader to um, make sense of. It's essentially done in the white space and it's not that it's not thorough. It is thorough, and it is exactly what it is. I mean, it never it never breaks. It seems like Stevenson has completely thought through what her world is and what the logic of the magic is and what how the whole society works. But there's very little explanation. So there's a point at which Blackheart says to somebody who appears to be human, oh, no, maybe it's Nimona. Nimona says to somebody who appears to be human, what are you, a goblin? And the person says, nothing. And then nothing. And then says, shut up. <laughs> you know, and so you're like, oh, she is a goblin. But we've never heard anything about goblins. We don't know what goblins do in this world. We don't know what, you know what I mean? But yet, Stevenson has managed to make it so that we are not like, what the heck? We're like, oh, we, it just reads as a reveal. Because she has subtly, over the course of most of this book, created a world in which we will believe them in goblins. And we will believe in goblins that can disguise themselves as people, even though she has not had very much text space to explain any of this. Uh, more and more these days, it seems you see graphic novels like this gaining recognition, critical recognition. I think of uh, more recent books like Roller Girl by Victoria Jameson and the John Lewis's Chronicle of his experience in the civil rights area and the, the March trilogy. Um, and do you think uh, graphic novels are, are really becoming more accepted as a genuine art form and the whole idea of them not being serious uh, reading as opposed to a novel is that idea is going away. I think that it is going away. It's certainly going away in terms of, you know, the awards from the American Library Association and the National Book Awards. I think it's going away less speedily in terms of academia um, and the way we talk about and teach literature in um, colleges and universities. But 
I do. I think there's a, a, a fascinating sea change happening. And there's so much great stuff being published in this field. And for young people and, and for adults, too. You know, I'm thinking of things like Fun Home or Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant, right? Both graphic um, stories in very, very different styles, memoirs, both of them, that are incredibly powerful and brilliant. So, yeah, it's, it's a, I think it's a really sparky, exciting time. Have you found that uh, in, in the reading of this book that it's influenced, even in a small way, your own writing? Oh, it definitely influenced me on Genuine Fraud because I was so thrilled to see main character who was a, a young woman who was so, you know, unapologetic and powerful and who embodied so many contradictions within herself. Are there any uh, particular passages from the book that you'd like to share? Well, the passage that I picked um, is, is a comical one. And I think that when I teach, I often talk about the role of humor in stories that are not exactly comedies or stories that aren't comedies at all. And one of the jobs that humor does in those stories is to create reader connection and, and specifically connection to characters who are funny. It's a way of just creating reader engagement and also getting a reader to stick with a difficult story because sometimes, you know, comic relief can really be the difference between being able to manage to make it through a story on a difficult topic and, and not being able to. So there are many dark parts of Nimona, but her relationship with Blackheart when they're just home, hanging around in his, in his house, is very, um, very funny. So this is on page eighty. And they've been in a battle, and Nimona has killed a bunch of people. And now she's back in human form, and he's been mad at her for being too violent. Actually, in this particular sequence, she didn't kill anybody. So he's pleased with her that she didn't kill anybody. But normally she's been killing people, and he's been quite cross. So they're all happy, but they come home, and she's got an arrow sticking out of her leg. And she reaches to, because she's just changed back into human form, and they didn't see it before. And He says, no, no, don't touch it. She says, you're such a granny. It's not even that deep. Ah, Because she's pulled it out and now it's bleeding. So she begins to have a tantrum. She's going, ow, 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 ow. And he says, I told you not to touch it. And he picks her up. He says, we have to get to my lab. I have medical supplies there. She says, it's bleeding a lot. And he's carrying her to the lab. He says, will you stop squirming? And she says, I'm sorry. It must be so inconvenient for you. And he says, this is all my fault. I never should have let this happen. She says, boss, I said it's fine. He bandages her up. She says, it's not like I didn't know it would be dangerous. He says, did you though? Did you really? I know this all seems like a big game to you, he says, but the institution doesn't play around. They won't pull their punches just because you're young. She says, I'm not expecting them to, but I appreciate your concern. I've been looking for out for myself for a long time. So don't baby me, okay? He says, I just don't want you to get hurt. She says, will you chill out? No one ever got killed with one little arrow. He says, actually, they do. That is kind of the purpose of arrows. And you need to stay off that leg. She says, ah, seriously? He says, you're going to take it easy till it heals. She says, but what about all our evil plans? He says, it wouldn't hurt to lay low for a while. She flops back. She says, ah, so I'm stuck here with you until my leg gets better? He says, I'm afraid so. 
He says, well, what's there around it? Uh, what's there to do around here anyway? He says, well, here we have world domination, which is basically monopoly. It builds strategy skills. You can play as a dog, a boot, or a trebuchet. Anyway, they look through the various games, and then they, they basically play world domination, a.k.a. monopoly, and Nimona plays the Scotty dog, which we all know. And you see them rolling dice and moving around the board and, you know, quarreling over the game. And so what struck me about this is how Stevenson is doing a number of complicated things that really make this scene work. And one of them is, you know, that they do have actually a very sincere conversation about their relationship and him taking care of her and her saying that she's been looking after herself and not to, to baby her anymore. But they also, there's a whole scene where she's kind of having this tantrum and he's, she's acting tough and then she acts like a big baby about the blood and she squirms and he, they tease each other back and forth. And then they, after the serious conversation, they go back to teasing and they, they play this game and the game is totally relatable. It's a game that we've all played that all people living in America know. And even though it's called something else and there's close up of the, the die and there's close up of the game board, which looks just like Monopoly. And even the Scotty dog, right? We all know that Scotty dog. And so they go into an interaction about playing this game that is completely mundane and relatable. And the hysteria over the blood is also completely mundane and relatable. That's, you know, just family life. And in the middle, they're talking about how to hatch their evil plan and their relationship. And so she's going back and forth between things that we can all understand and laugh at and things that are very extreme. And so that push and pull um, between those things is one of the great charms of this book. Oh, it definitely is. It definitely is. Uh, Well, Ms. Lockhart, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me tonight and uh, to share this this, uh, terrific book. Oh, I'm glad you liked it. It's really a huge favorite of mine. Everyone should read it. You can find E. Lockhart's website at www.emilylockhart.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music titled All Together is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art is provided by Creative Pro 180, courtesy of Fiverr, which can be found at www.fiverr.com. You can visit me at jleemott.com or follow me on Twitter at DreamGardensJLM. The Dream Gardens podcast is also available through iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. Until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading. Keep reading.